0: Volume Two, Chapter Seventeen of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowatt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter Seventeen. Love on, love on, I, even though the heart we fondly build on, proveth like sand though one by faith's corner stones depart, and even hope's last pillar fails to stand, though we may dread the lips we once believed, and know their falsehood shadows all our days, who would not rather trust and be deceived than own the mean cold spirit that betrays. Eliza Cook From Catherine Bolton to Elizabeth Montague March twenty-fifth. On returning from a visit to Evelyn yesterday morning, almost the first persons whom I met were Colonel Damereau and Mr. Elton, walking arm in arm. I had forgotten that they were acquainted. It would be difficult to decide the sight of which of these two unfortunate men pained me most deeply. How an accidental meeting— a casual glance will revive scenes and thoughts which we have perhaps spent an existence in trying to forget the seal upon our book of life melts at a look and long closed pages of that mystic volume are spread before us to pain or to rejoice but heart-stricken wounded and betrayed we must still live on dream on and, it may be, love on. When I reached home, little Netta opened the door for me with a very portentous face. What is the matter now? I inquired. Oh, Miss Catherine, I have had such trouble with Blanche, answered the child, who seemed to feel the full dignity and importance attached to the double offices of jailer and spy. What has happened? I asked, and not without some evil forebodings nothing much only she acts so queer and she has got out of the house unbeknownst to me but she wasn't gone long before i missed her and i went right after her just as you told me i saw her three or four blocks ahead for i knew her by her shawl and ran after her as hard as i could tear but i couldn't get up to her until she had been to the apothecary's right by the park she pushed against me when she came out and she made for home i was alongside of her in a jiffy and then i saw that she was hiding something under her shawl but i couldn't get her to tell me what it was i tried hard though for i was sure you'd want to know when we came home i watched her but i couldn't make out that she had anything at all along with her and i thought that perhaps i might be mistaken where is she now upstairs settling the rooms confused visions of arsenic and prussic acid and laudanum flitted through my head as i sought blanche but when i found her my alarm was soon dispelled she was arranging mrs willard's bed and singing a lively french air as she beat up the bolsters there was no trepidation in her look and manner "'and she appeared calmer and more collected than usual. "'You have been out, Blanche,' said I. "'Where did you go?' "'To buy some cologne,' she replied, "'holding up a small bottle which she laid upon the table. "'Her unembarrassed tone quieted my fears. "'But as I walked away, "'I accidentally caught sight of her face reflected in the glass.' It was lighted by a strange, exulting smile. I turned towards her again, but her countenance was perfectly calm, and she continued her employment, composedly shaking the mattress and smoothing the pillows. To satisfy myself further, I went to her room and searched amongst her clothes, but nothing of a suspicious nature was discoverable my school has so rapidly increased within the last few weeks that i now number fifteen pupils who regularly attend since evelyn's illness ellen's desk has remained vacant but though the duties thrown solely upon me are many and arduous they are not greater than i can faithfully discharge i never depart from one established system and strict method "'Renders labor light. "'I have not, as you may suppose, "'had much leisure to devote to Evelyn, "'but she hardly needs my presence, "'for Amy and Ellen are constantly by her side. "'Though still feeble, she is convalescent, "'and her recovery appears to be certain. "'Her mental sufferings have been great, "'but they are now considerably ameliorated. "'Of Amy... I hardly know what to write. Her self-control strikes me almost with awe. She moves about with a placid brow, performing a thousand kind offices for her unfortunate friend, and hourly devising some mode of rendering Evelyn's remorse less poignant. But of herself she never appears to think. Except that her cheek is deadly pale, and her voice is often tremulous— "'I can detect little change from what she was before her betrothal to Colonel D'Amoureux. "'Is this insensibility or the very acme of womanly self-control?' "'Mrs. Willard evidently suspects that Ellen's continued attendance upon the invalid at Nancy's "'has some connection with my conversation the other evening.' It is this suspicion which has of late rendered her manner more brusque than ever, her tone more querulous, and her whole demeanour harsher. And, Evelyn, how can the earnest desire of her penitent spirit ever be gratified? She has no mother now. This afternoon, when I see her, perhaps... March 26th i broke off hastily yesterday morning for it was time for the school bell to sound well for me was it that i knew not what yesterday afternoon would bring forth after dinner i paid my wonted visit to evelyn she was sitting up in the veteran armchair, which had been given to nancy for the use of the old grandmother amy and ellen were near her both busied with their needles before i proceed let me mention that amy's bounty has diffused an air of comfort about evelyn's little chamber which entirely destroys its resemblance to the wretched abode in which ellen and i first discovered the unhappy fugitive the rickety cot has been supplanted by a small but comfortable french bed the floor is covered with a neat carpet a pretty chintz curtain hangs before the only window "'There are several commodious chairs, a little table, a Vilnuz, a diminutive air-tight stove, which stands before the hearth. "'Evelyn made serious objection to these alterations in her chamber, for they only seemed to render her more sensible of her unworthiness, "'more strongly contrasting her own fallen state with Amy's angel-like purity and goodness.' but her remonstrances sounded like ingratitude, and, as she submitted, she felt that kindness was indeed coals of fire heaped upon her head. When I entered the room, Amy was conversing in a subdued tone with her friend, but she ceased on beholding me. Laying aside my hat as I greeted them, I seated myself beside Evelyn. In her loose white wrapper... She looked thinner than ever. I was marking the ravages which disease and sorrow had made in her wasted form, and wondering whether it was the elevated expression of her faded features, which rendered them still so lovely, when she started at some sound which her ear had caught without its reaching mine. Her sudden movement aroused our attention. Nancy's voice, raised in angry remonstrance, was distinctly audible. Her words— and those of the person to whom she spoke were soon drowned by the terrified cries of little johnny in another moment the altercation ceased it was succeeded by a heavy but hasty step transversing the outer apartment ellen rose instinctively to fasten the outer chamber door but it flew open before she could touch the key a mournful cry burst from ellen's lips richard with a livid countenance "'stood before her. "'Evie! "'Oh, Evie, "'Evie!' "'His gaunt frame shook as he spoke, "'and his bloodshot eyes closed "'and reopened spasmodically, "'as though the tears with which they were filled "'caused acute pain. "'Evie!' he exclaimed again, "'but even more hoarsely, "'and rather as if soliloquizing "'than addressing his sister. "'No!' tain't evie i wouldn't believe it tain't evie sitting before me in that chair it's her ghost maybe tain't evie the first thoughts were engrossed by her altered appearance for he beheld indeed the mere shadow of what evelyn was but when with her head drooping upon her bosom she stretched out her thin hand and falteringly murmured brother he recoiled his features were convulsed, their expression rapidly changed. Looking almost fiercely at the trembling invalid, he shook his clenched fist and shouted, No, no brother of yours. Never call me brother till I know it's all an infernal lie. But it ain't. It couldn't be anything else. Evie, tell me yourself, and I'll hunt the rascal down that invented it round the globe you didn't you wouldn't you couldn't oh evie you loved me you loved us all too well to disgrace us spare me spare me richard pleaded evelyn as she shrank back yet stretched her arms imploringly towards him it's all true then no it ain't it shan't be blisters on the foul tongue that said it was true it's a lie evelyn merritt tell me quickly say that it's a lie before i go stark raving mad speak speak and say you are my sister yet he approached her menacingly as he uttered these furious words evelyn shook her averted head and hid her face upon amy's shoulder richard's motion was so violent That he could hardly gasp forth i won't believe it evie evie i'm a fool i'll tar and feather the first fellow i meet i'll make mincemeat of that scoundrel the colonel i'll lynch him and all his relations i'll exterminate the vermin but it ain't true though i've got it all here he drew a letter out of his pocket where evie lived where she'd been what she'd been thunder and lightning if i could catch the rascal that wrote this i'd powder his bones without a mortar he crushed and crumpled the letter in his hands while he was speaking then abstractedly smoothed it again opened it read a few lines and suddenly darted towards evelyn seized her rudely by the shoulder will you tell me the truth girl are you ashamed of your sex a blot on our name and no sister of mine say are you Colonel Delarue's mistress?-a street-walker?-a low, lost, depraved, polluted, cast-off dreg and remnant? Evelyn's agonizing shame and horror seemed to threaten instant dissolution. The heart-rending groan that escaped her lips recalled my wandering senses. With a violent effort, I rose from the chair to which I seemed to have been chained richard could not finish his dreadful sentence for i thrust him aside exclaiming you will kill her for the love of heaven have some pity be a man he stopped and drew back while i filling a tumbler with water held it to evelyn's lips she could not drink her head sank upon the cushion of the chair her eyes closed richard stood watching his sister while amy bathed her temples and then burst forth in a voice broken by stifled sobs. "'How oh, I loved you, Evie! Such pride! I took such pride in you! And now, now they can fling it in my teeth! Any ragamuffin can make light of you! The street sweeps may throw their mud at me! I haven't anything to care for now! New York must get along without me! I shan't think too much of hiding!' "'Mr. Willard,' interposed opposed eye, "'Your sister is very ill. "'I must insist upon your leaving her for the present.' "'I accompanied my word with a tolerably forcible attempt "'to lead him from the room. "'He broke loose, and this time shaking his fist at me, "'as though he was glad of some new object "'upon which to vent his wrath and grief, exclaimed, "'Miss Carey! Miss Ketty, "'You're—you're—you're you're an old woman! You are!' For a second, I felt the truth of Byron's lines, yet in the extremest grief there is a mirth. I could have laughed, laughed though my feelings had seldom been so harrowed. I was about to reply by beseeching Richard to withdraw, when a step behind me, an ejaculation from Ellen and Amy, and a piercing shriek from Evelyn made me quiver in every limb i looked back and beheld colonel Damoreau retreating towards the open door i could not have believed that his manly features could express such mingled horror and cowardice in extreme terror i turned to evelyn again she was standing upright unsupported with her glazing eyes riveted upon his her lips apart and pale as her hueless cheeks her limbs one moment rigid slowly relaxed her head fell and she sank lifeless into ellen's arms with a sudden impulse such as i am sure has seldom moved him colonel Damoreau sprang forward and threw himself upon his knees beside evelyn for she lay partly extended upon the floor and partly supported upon her kneeling sister's bosom he seized his victim's icy hand but Richard, darting upon him with tiger-like fury, grasped his arm and dragged him away, shouting, "'Don't do that! Don't dare touch her! "'If she is dead, I'd see all the worms in Christendom "'crawling over her rather than let you lay a finger on her!' "'Colonel Damoreau had risen to his feet, "'and though he strove to confront Richard, "'he had lost all control over his convulsed muscles.' now sir said richard again laying hold of his arm i've caught you and you're accountable to me to me sir do you know who i am to me to that lady's brother for she was my sister before you made her a disgrace to any man who claimed kin with her oh you damnable double-faced scoundrel and he seized the colonel by the throat with such a powerful grasp that it was only by a violent effort that his adversary could extricate himself colonel damereau was taken at the greatest disadvantage he was perfectly unmanned unnerved he tried to throw an expression of contempt into his countenance as he regarded richard but the look was not unmingled with one of bewildered terror sir he began but his eyes wandered back to the inanimate evelyn and then rested despairingly upon amy with a sudden movement he shook off richard and rushed towards the bed upon which evelyn had been laid amy hear me amy he said in that rich thrilling tone which so often had charmed our ears amy rose from the half recumbent position in which she was ministering to evelyn rose with what majestic awe-inspiring dignity and as she turned her pale face towards him its expression would have been stern but for the pitying sweetness which mingled with its severity her eyes were not cast down before his pleading glance and she said in a tone and with an action which made me think of some rebuking angel may the misery which you have brought on others never be visited upon yourself begone he attempted to speak but she repeated commandingly begone and the reckless man of the world shrank before this meek and simple-hearted girl abashed at her look and involuntarily obeying her bidding It was the momentary triumph of purity over insolent vice. Amy was again bending over Evelyn, and Colonel Damero stood at the open door, uncertain whether to advance or retreat. Richard, who had motionlessly watched Ellen, while with tremulous hands she essayed to revive her sister, now strided towards the Colonel, as though fearful that he would escape not so fast sir not so fast you are answerable to me remember that if i don't get a gentleman's satisfaction out of you then my name's not dick nor never was oh damn you damn you for the greatest scoundrel that wears a head but i'll teach you whose folks you've got to deal with now i will amy who heard these words again left evelyn's side and laying her hand beseechingly on richard's arm said mr willard i beg that you will allow us to be alone your sister her voice was choked by emotion and she could not finish her sentence poor evie poor evie muttered richard the jigs up with her better so better so then turning to the colonel he roared out come along sir come along and forced him out of the room amy closed the door and turned the key we gathered about evelyn no breath came to her lips no warmth to her clammy hands which ellen was chafing no hue to the ghastly countenance fixed in statue-like repose we none spoke none wept but with an awe-inspired quietude "'Earnestly continued our efforts to restore the suspended animation. "'Minutes seemed like hours to us, for our task was vain. "'Amy clasped her hands in mute despair and stood inactive by the bedside. "'Ellen threw herself moaning and weeping upon the cold form of her sister, "'as though her warm tears and passionate kisses could restore it to life. "'And I what could i do but mourn in silence how long we remained thus i cannot say a wild but joyful exclamation from ellen roused us great god she moves she revives a faint hue was indeed tinging evelyn's marble cheek and the lids of her half-closed eyes slightly quivered picture to yourself our heartfelt grateful joy when In a few moments more intelligence beamed in those before-glazing eyes, and recognition was followed by a languid smile. That smile quickly vanished when recollection returned, but Evelyn was restored to us, and we were too thankful to think of sorrow. No allusion to Richard or Colonel Damoreau was made, but Evelyn's countenance plainly told that her memory was not impaired. Amy possesses even a greater influence over her friend than either ellen or i and evelyn was momentarily becoming more agitated seating herself upon the bed beside her amy motioned us to withdraw we left the room and entered nancy's shop neither colonel Damoreau nor richard was visible nancy informed us that the first gentleman had forced his way in that she was not in the shop when the second came "'and that both had left the house together.' "'How could they possibly have discovered Evelyn's retreat?' asked Ellen, "'as though she would willingly persuade herself that I possessed the art of divination, "'and could answer her question.' "'I cannot imagine,' replied I. "'Richard, it appears, received a letter. Perhaps it was an anonymous one. "'It was very strange that they should both come at the same hour.' do you know that while they were here i thought that some wicked person had planned the meeting and i dreaded every moment to see walter enter but who would have planned it who knows of evelyn's existence even is not laura hilson acquainted with dr westley inquired ellen thoughtfully no yes I believe she is. He often called upon me while I was at Fleecer's, and the Hilsons made his acquaintance. But Dr. Westley does not himself know that his patient is Evelyn. Perhaps not, but... Amy opened the door, and we hastened to Evelyn's bedside. She was perfectly calm, though a tear glistened on her cheek. It had grown quite dark, and after bribing Billy to escort me to an omnibus i prepared to return home the tea-table was spread and mrs willard impatiently awaited me mr willard was casting up his accounts at a small side-table in the corner his wife took no apparent notice of my unusual trepidation of manner and she has ceased to ask questions or make remarks considering the invalid who engrosses so much of our time i more than suspect that she has divined the truth our report was not a very cheerful one for i found it difficult to regain my composure just as we were rising from the table netta was summoned by a loud ring to the street door and a moment afterwards we were joined by mr merit i at first thought that it was my own conscious fancy which gave him such a wild and haggard look when he entered. His hair hung in dishevelled masses about his thin face, and his dress was strangely disordered. His manner, too, on greeting us, was abrupt and nervous, and he cast many uneasy glances about the room. Once only were his wandering eyes fixed, and then they looked steadily in my face— i could not help shrinking before his searching gaze it seemed to me as though he had the power to read every secret within my soul while netta was clearing the table the conversation was wholly sustained by mrs willard her son-in-law was too absent even to reply to her numerous queries all at once he turned to me and said miss bolton can i speak a few words to you alone i have something of importance to say "'Let it be as soon as possible.' I was beginning to grow nervous, but replied, "'Certainly, Mr. Merritt. Mrs. Willard will excuse us.' And, lighting a candle, led the way to the schoolroom. Mr. Merritt followed me. The door was closed. We were alone together. I handed him a chair. He took it. We both sat down, but neither spoke.' After one of those awful pauses, in which anticipation conjures up everything that is disagreeable, Mr. Merritt broke the silence by exclaiming, Miss Bolton, you you will think me a fool to be played upon in this manner, but I do believe that I am half mad. Pray explain yourself, Mr. Merritt, I answered. If I can be of any service, you can command me he still hesitated, but after a shorter interval he thrust his hand into his pocket and, drawing forth a letter, forced it into my hand, and said hurriedly, "'What do you think of that? Read, read!' I mechanically unfolded the letter. The handwriting was evidently disguised. It was anonymous. A mist floated before my eyes. It was some time before I could decipher the words." I peruse them at last. As nearly as I can remember, they were as follows. March 25th If Mr. Merritt desires again to behold his wife, he will find her this afternoon at number blank, Grant Street. Since husbands are the last to become thoroughly aware of their own domestic calamities, it may be well to remark that mrs merritt has for some months past been under the protection of colonel Damoreau, by whom she was finally forsaken amongst the persons aware of mrs merritt's disgrace the most prominent in encouraging and upholding her now that she is destitute we may mention miss bolton the misguided evelyn is indebted to this officious lady's influence for many of her misfortunes, but upon that subject it is useless to enlarge. Miss Bolton is thoroughly acquainted with Mrs. Merritt's private history. If Mr. Merritt has any curiosity to ascertain the truth of these assertions, he will call this afternoon, five o'clock, at number Blank, Ground Street. I finish the letter with feelings of disgust and a sickening sense of terror perfectly indescribable mr merritt was watching me as my eyes encountered his he groaned out i did not believe it a hoax a hoax i knew that it was a cruel hoax i would not be made a fool of i did not go there but i was so oppressed with dread so maddened with fear that i came to you you are kind you will not ridicule my credulity you will tell me the truth but i know it already it was all a hoax people should learn to take such things coolly to despise them but i hate jest you know that i have always hated them what could i say how could i extinguish the last flickering hope which was the sole light of this miserable man's existence i could not reply to him but turned my eyes again upon the letter. He saw my indecision, and said, in a tone of alarm, "'You do not speak. You look pale. Why do you not relieve me of this terrible suspicion?' And then added, drawing near to me, and with increasing agitation, "'Do you know anything of Evelyn? For heaven's sake, do not keep me in this state of suspense and torture. Is she alive?' "'Yes,' she lives joy mastered every other feeling banished every doubt cast out every dread for a moment mr merritt's face was irradiated by hope oh god he murmured this is too much happiness he turned from me but it was to hide the tears that flowed down his cheeks "'I could not endure to see him cherishing a false hope. "'Mr. Merritt,' I began, but he interrupted me. "'She is alive. "'You say she lived. "'Pardon me for being so overcome. "'I never thought,' he stopped. "'The pitying expression of my countenance startled him. "'Where is she?' he questioned hurriedly. "'How came you to discover her? "'Where has she been?' before i made up my mind what to reply he asked impatiently did any accident befall her no that simple word struck a cold chill to his heart the truth burst upon him like a flash of lightning and like the lightning it blasted and withered the convulsive workings of his features were positively fearful i was forced to avert my eyes As I said, Evelyn was very young. She was deluded. She has been unfortunate. She has suffered. I could say no more. How could I plead for the guilty wife to the injured husband? Mr. Merritt made no reply. He rose. His face was almost fierce in its sternness, and yet he was calm. He bowed to me, and I extended my hand. Hesitatingly, he took it and said, I cannot think ill of you. He tried to command his voice, but its tone was husky and feeble. I was provoked with myself that I could say no more that i could not speak one expiatory word for evelyn but my parched lips seemed glued to one another and my tongue refused its office mr merritt had approached the door as he opened it we heard the sound of hastily retreating steps and i knew that our conversation had not passed unheard "'Mr. Merritt re-entered the parlour "'and bid to Mr. and Mrs. Willard "'good evening. "'The former was still engaged "'with his account-books, "'and Mrs. Willard was sitting upon the sofa, "'apparently knitting. "'But I remarked that her spool of cotton "'had rolled away, "'and that her needles were entangled "'as though she had thrown them down carelessly "'and had taken them up in haste. "'Mr. Merritt "'bade us a ceremonious good-night,' and almost before it was returned, withdrew. I expected to be questioned by Mrs. Willard, but she continued busily occupied in extricating her needles and never alluded to her son-in-law's visit. I retired early to bed, and confused images of Mr. Merritt, Colonel Damoreau, Richard, and Evelyn haunted my dreams. End of Chapter 17